you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4. If you're new here, uh, welcome. My name's Andrew, and uh, you've just chosen to join us on a week where we find ourselves in the middle of a series um, entitled Elisha. <laughs> it's about Elisha and the ministry that God <clears throat> did through him. So we pick up this morning right in verse, uh, verse 8 of, of uh, chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you would have seen, you would have heard, you would hopefully remember, it was just a week ago after all, uh, that Elisha was able to provide for a woman in great need. This was a woman who uh, had lost it all. It says her husband had passed away. She had two sons, and that was all she had, apart from a small little bit, little skiff at the bottom of a flask of oil. And so a woman who had nothing uh, had a lot to fear for, and so creditors were on their way to come and um, she was, risk, she, she was uh, at risk of losing both of her sons. The only thing she had was to be taken away. And so God provided uh, for her in a, in a great time of need. And what we find here in our text this morning is a bit of the opposite. It's a bit of, a, a bit of an inverse that's going on. And we'll study this text together. But what I hope you see and what I want you to see through our, the remainder of our series, and if you haven't already, I, I hope to make this obvious to you, is that the, the, the miracles that Elijah and Elisha have done are miraculous, but they show not how wonderful and amazing Elijah and Elisha both were, but how incredible our God is. They're not Elijah and Elisha's miracles, they're God's miracles. It's, dis- it's a display of God's supremacy, of God's ultimateness over all things through unexplainable acts that can only be chalked up to God Almighty. And so the point, I think, in all of them is that God is, Yahweh is God, and he's big and he's powerful and he's mighty but also that he's present he's with us he's with his people Uh, you'll also know that uh, a few chapters ago um, Elijah pardon me Elijah had a confrontation with a king a wicked king called Ahab and in a divine contest between Ahab's prophets 850 prophets of false gods Asherah and Baal they go up and there's this epic contest between these false gods and Yahweh where they make an altar and they sacrifice an animal and they uh, make this altar on wood and uh, basically Elijah tells Ahab hey whoever whosoever god can light this altar on fire we won't light it but whosoever whosoever god can deliver fire from heaven that'll be the true god deal and he says okay deal and uh, the, the story, I, don't, I won't, I won't uh, go into great detail after all, that's not our text. But in 1 Kings 18, you see a miraculous act where this altar's prepared and the prophets of Baal and Asherah can't, can't call anything. They can't, they, they're, they're powerless. Their gods aren't answering. And Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, oh, perhaps your God is relieving himself. Or perhaps he can't hear, speak louder. So he's mocking them, right? And then in the very next, next scene, you see Elijah calls down God to act and, and uh, water is poured all over this altar and there's in fact like so much water that it's just dripping off the wood. There's no way it could catch fire even if you lit it. Even if you had gas it just wouldn't catch. But sure enough God calls down God's mighty hand ignites and consumes this entire altar and the rest you can read for yourself. But what we should see through all of these divine acts is not any, any strength or any might of man but only of God. God's proven himself by this point to be able to create water from nothing or from apparently nowhere. I don't know if you can say the same about yourself. You can call water down from from anywhere. Uh, But in a time where a drought was promised, uh, God told Elijah there will be a drought. Prepare for it. And so there was a drought. And uh, that drought ends just shortly after the, the, the story that we just went through. But water, through a storm and a mighty, mighty winds and storm comes down and ends the drought. And 
Massive amounts of water just rain down from heaven. And so God can cause at will water to appear. In a story we read a few weeks ago, some, some uh, three or four chapters back, water appears enough to provide for three armies almost out of nowhere overnight to those who would be obedient to God. God has purified through, through the prophet uh, Elisha a contaminated water source. So an entire city of Jericho had contaminated water and it was uh, causing infertility and death. And what's amazing is when, when water's provided, when great things are done, here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 18. This is a simple thing for the Lord. <laughs> in other words, God's not even trying. These miraculous works and wonders are a simple thing for God. So the point is this, is that the God of Israel is to be feared. He is supreme in every way, and he will stop at nothing. And so inasmuch as God has bestowed particular gifts or powers or insight or skills to these men, Elijah and Elisha both, and other prophets throughout the Old Testament. They're, they're accounts not of the greatness of man or these particular men, but they're accounts of God's strength and his almightiness intervening in the lives of those who fear him. So God supports those whom, who fear him. And that can happen on a grand political platform, as we saw with these armies that can also happen in the passage like we studied last week in the privacy of a room with a closed door. God cares, God loves, God is present with those whom fear him. We see in the book of John as well, when Jesus begins to perform signs and wonders, people are amazed and they, uh, so as to not be mistaken for a magician or some kind of person who's just here, to, here for show, uh, the, the gospel writer John tells us why these things are recorded and the reason for the signs and wonders of Jesus in the book of John are so that the eyes of the blind would be opened and the eyes of the blind who think their eyes are opened would be shut. There's a contrast between light and darkness and what the gospel writer John through the ministry of Jesus is urging you to see is that God is light and in light there is no darkness. That light would prevail that you would see there's a contrast between light and darkness, people who understand and who don't understand, people whose eyes are closed and people whose eyes are open. And so even though we're not studying the book of John this morning, we're studying the book of 2 Kings, I want you to have that in mind, that these are great and mighty acts, that you would see the great and mighty things that God has done and God will do. So our text this morning is 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 8 through till verse 37. And what I want to do is simply walk through it together in three sections. I'll give you those headings. And I've written the headings, but they're just uh, simple ways to break it down. And the headings are this. There's an unexpected blessing, followed by an unfathomable loss. And it ends with an unusual miracle. And we'll conclude our time together where I would like to ask a question and I'd like to provide a couple of thoughts as a response to that question. So an unexpected blessing, an unfathomable loss, and an unusual miracle followed by some thoughts together. So let's dig into our text, 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says, One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. That sounds like a good deal. <laughs> Come to my house for lunch. I'm urging you. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in and eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. 
Now, you'll notice, you'll remember if you were with us last week, this is kind of a mirror image, but a, but a bit of an opposite, an inverse of the woman from the previous week who, who had nothing except two sons. This woman seems to have it all. Just the very next verse, there's a woman who seems to have it all. Her and her husband, they're, they're people of means. They're on opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And, and riches and, and uh, affluence is contrasted just a few verses earlier with poverty. A woman who's a widow now in this text this morning has a husband. She's married and they seem to be getting along fine. And in, and in the, the first portion of chapter 4, this woman's about to lose it all. What, what she does have, her sons, are going to be taken from her. But this woman seems to have no reason to be afraid. But she extends hospitality to Elisha on a number of occasions. So much so that she says to her husband, hey, this guy, we should help him out. Like, we have the means to make a room for him and, and, and give him a place to stay. So we should do that. And so they make for him a little guest, a guest house. And in those days, roofs were flat. And so uh, they would have built for him a little little sort of temporary structure, but maybe semi-permanent, on the roof. And so he had his own privacy, and he had a lamp, and it says he had, um, he had a chair, and he had some basic things for, uh, for himself. And so they extended hospitality to him. Now, this, this in and of itself should give us some clues that this woman is a fearer of the Lord. It, it doesn't say she feared the Lord or she worshipped the Lord, but that's a big clue for us, that this woman understands something's going on with this Yahweh. She says to her husband that I perceive this is a holy man of God. So she extends hospitality. And hospitality is a, a significant thing for you to open up your doors and, and host somebody. We see this in the book of Joshua where uh, the spies are sent out into the land of Canaan, into the city of Jericho. And they're about to destroy the city, right? And so these spies are hidden in the house of, of a woman named Rahab. And though she's, she's from Jericho, so she's not an Israelite, she's not a part of God's chosen people, but she hides the spies and she looks after them and spares them as word gets out that there's these spies, um, the, 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 uh, the armies are after to catch these spies and Rahab hides them. And she says, listen, I'm going to let you go, I'm going to keep you safe for the night and I let you go out the back, you're going to come down the, the city wall through a rope and you're going to make, you're going to disappear, but I'm going to help save you, and in turn, I want you to remember me when you come to destroy our city and spare us. And it says, for, it says in uh, Joshua chapter 6, she lives among the Israelites to this day. So to serve God's people is in a way to serve the Lord by showing hospitality, just like Rahab. Jesus says in Matthew 10, he who receives you receives me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. In other words, there's, there's some benefit. There's, there's, there's a, a, a form of worship in offering hospitality to God's people. Romans 10 in the New Testament tells us when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. I hope that can be said of me, that I'm eager to practice hospitality. My house is kind of full most days, but I hope the same too can be said of you, that you're eager to practice hospitality. In other words, you're never too busy or you're never too unorganized or you never have an excuse to not practice hospitality but to serve God's people is indeed to serve the Lord like we see this woman and her husband extending to Elisha let's continue in verse 11 it says one day he came there he being Elisha and he turned into the chamber and rested there and he said to Gehazi his servant call this Shunammite when he had called her she stood before him and she said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. 
So here we have uh, Elisha. He, he's wishing in some way to maybe repay or maybe express some kind of thanks for this woman's hospitality and, and this ongoing support of, of his work as a prophet. And so he sets up this three-way conversation between himself, his servant Gehazi, and this woman who comes and stands in the doorway. And they have this conversation. And he offers to leverage his relationship with the king and with the commander of the army who happened to be the two most uh, humanly speaking, the two most powerful and influential people in, in the whole land. And so he offers to leverage that and, and say, hey, what can we do for you? Just your wish is my command, in other words. Let us help you. Is there anything we can do for you? This would have been her time to make any request. At least would have been worth asking, right? I mean, it's worth a shot. He's offering me anything. And so, uh, but her response is, is kind of backwards. She says, I dwell among my own people. So it suggests that she, and of course, as we read before, they're, they're people of means. They're not looking to get ahead any, any further. They're doing fine. They don't need a tax break. They don't need any kind of favor shown to them. They don't need a hand up. She's content. Her and her husband are content. And she says, I dwell among my own people. And that's, that's to say that even if I did have a need, even if there was something that I was lacking, I, I'm at home here. Like my people are with me. I'll, I'll be fine. Thank you, Elisha, but no thank you. It's kind of you, but she kindly and respectfully declines the offer. Let's pick up in verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, don't lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elisha had said to her. And so he seems to be, Elisha seems to be persistent, even though she doesn't need any kind of help, monetarily speaking. He says, well, surely we can do something. And so Gehazi has the insight that this woman is likely barren. We don't know of any other children in the picture. The text seems to suggest that her and her husband were content in their childlessness. They had come to terms with the fact that they couldn't conceive. And to you and I, that, that's not uncommon in our society. But in this day, if you didn't have kids, particularly sons, that was cause for concern. Because your sons, in a patrilineal world where, where the lineage was carried on primarily through the male line, so inheritances and things like that, the family name would be continued and your kids would look after you and their kids would look after them and so on and so forth. This woman no doubt had cause, social cause, maybe a, a cultural cause for concern in her barrenness. There's, there's a certain amount of shame and cultural and societal pressures that her and her husband just simply can't meet up to. So having a daughter in those days would have been great, but the problem is that daughters marry off as they do and they go continue someone else's family lineage along. So not only do they not have uh, kids, they don't have a son. They don't have sons to provide security. But yet a child is promised to her from Elisha and she is in disbelief and she says, Oh no, my Lord, don't, don't get my hopes up like that. Like we've been here before. We know that there's just no way. My husband's old. We've tried that. That ship sailed. We're, we're fine, thanks. But yet... A child is promised, and so a year later, according to the words of the prophet, she conceives, and it says she embraces a son in her arms. And this would be awesome if in verse 17 it said, and they lived happily ever after. It would be a great end to a, to a story where, where God provides, and, and we move on, and the text moves on. But it doesn't, it, it moves on, but it doesn't end there. Would that this story did end there, 
they could have lived happily ever after and been spared from some turmoil that was lurking just a few short years down the road. Let's pick up in verse 18. How much can change in three short verses? Let me show you what I mean. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. So he's working in the field. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servants, to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he, had lift, when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. Three short verses. This woman and her husband's world is turned upside down. This sudden and unexpected death snatched the gift of God away just as soon as it came, just as quickly. This precious gift that this woman had received, undeserved, unexpected gift, is lying lifeless in her lap. Which is grief, I can only imagine. It says, She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him, and she went out. Verse 22, Then she called her to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So her child, she's taken him to the, to the chamber that she's made for Elisha. The child is lifeless, laying on the bed, and she sends for Elisha herself. I would imagine she had some expectation or some intention behind making such a quick and sudden trip off to Mount Carmel where Elisha would have been. So she calls for this donkey and a servant to basically say, take me there. And she says, we're going. This is where we're going. Don't slacken the pace. Don't, don't slow down. If anyone talks to you, don't stop. We need to go. And her husband even asks, like, what, what's going on? And she says, all is well. And of course, you and I know that all is not well. But she's got about a 20-mile journey ahead of her from Shunem to Carmel is about the distance roughly from here, this building here, to the city of Nanaimo. And for you and I, by car, it takes maybe 20, 25 minutes. But for her, she's looking at some six-hour journey on the back of a donkey. So it's a long trip. And she says, stop for nothing. Let's continue. Verse 25. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away, but the woman, or pardon me, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So this woman gets closer and she sees Gehazi who runs out and says, Hey, how's it going? Is all well? Why are you here? Is everything good? And she kind of blows him off and she says, Yeah, I'm fine. All, all is well. And she said that before when all was not well. But she's not there to see Gehazi, is she? She's there to see Elisha. She knew where to go. She went to Mount Carmel by donkey, and she's there to see Elisha. So with her pat answer of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, all is well, she really is there to see Elisha. She arrives to him, 
and falls at his feet. I can only imagine the grief of a mother who's just lost her son. I can only imagine what was going through her mind. But the image of a woman weeping at the feet of a prophet is, reminds me of the woman who's weeping at the feet of Jesus. And for a moment, Elisha says, listen, Gehazi, back off. She's in distress. I don't know what's going on. God hasn't revealed it to me. After all, Elisha wasn't God. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't all-knowing, all-powerful, but he depended on God's wisdom and God's revelation at every point. But he says, listen, this woman is in bitter distress. So with the woman collapsed at his feet, they sat for some amount of time in, in, in imaginably some amount of grief. Some five years ago or so, I was working with a youth group and there was a young uh, family who lost their son in a tragic ski accident. And this son was a part of our, our youth group. And so one week came up where we had the opportunity to meet with this family with the, the raw emotions of, of a lost son. Very fresh. And so we met in this room. We had a chance to tell, tell some stories and, and share about their son and talk a little bit about the future. And at the end of our meeting, we stood up and before we left the building, this woman gave me a hug. There are no words for the times like that, are there? A woman whose son has just been killed hugging you. I don't think I've ever been hugged more deeply in my life. And there are no words. But to, to be held in the embrace of a mother who's just lost her son. The pain is raw and it is real. And some of you know this kind of grief in your life. Maybe you've lost a child. I know some of you have. Some of you have lost a spouse. Job's surrounded by his friends in a time where he's just lost everything except his own life and his wife is alive. But he's lost everything. Three friends come and surround him and their best moment is at the very beginning of the chapter where they say nothing for seven days. His friends sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. It tells us in verse 13 of chapter 2, because they saw that the suffering was too great for words. There are no words with grief. This woman has a chance to pour her heart out to Elisha, and she does exactly that. We pick up in verse 28. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? She's speaking to Elisha. She said, did I ask you for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? In other words, this is worse than before. I didn't even ask you for a son. God miraculously gave me a son. And as quickly as he came, just a few short years later, he's been snatched out of my hands. This is worse. This is a woman in deep grief and in deep anguish. It's almost as if they'd come to terms with their childlessness, with their barrenness. And now they've known the joy of conceiving and raising a child and watching him grow. And now this boy has been taken away. She says, I'm, I, I'm, I'm worse off than before. Did I not tell you? Don't deceive me. Don't get my hopes up. We have a story of grief. So where three verses ago, the story could have been happily ever after, if the story ended here, this would be a very different story. It would be a sad story. Let's continue. Verse 29, where we see an unusual miracle. 
So we've seen an unexpected blessing. We've seen an unfathomable loss. And now we see an unusual miracle. Verse 29, Elijah, Elisha, pardon me, finally responds. And he doesn't respond to the woman. He responds to his servant Gehazi. He says, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the, child's, on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her. So he, he responds with, with some immediacy to his, um, to his servant Gehazi. And he says, tie up your garment. Now you can imagine running some 20 miles in your house coat. That wouldn't go well. So to tie up your garment is to, to tie it up. Get, get ready to run, in other words. So Gehazi and the woman, Elisha's instructions are for Gehazi and the woman to return the 20 miles she's just traveled to go back home. And he gives some instructions to Gehazi on, on what to do next. And so in the same haste that the woman just a few hours earlier promptly came to uh, Elisha with, he's saying, now go back. Don't stop. If anyone talks to you, ignore them. Make haste. Stop for nothing. And the instructions are for Ge Gehazi to place the staff on the face of the child. And, and this isn't like some magic wand kind of thing where the, the stick is, is the secret. No, the power is of God. And Elisha knows that. But he's saying perhaps if Gehazi goes and can beat us there, just like the staff of Moses proved to have some kind of power of God by, by God's allowance, that perhaps the staff will help by being placed on the boy's face. But this woman is persistent and understandably so. She says to him, as surely as, the Lord lead, as surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, I'm not leaving your side. And what's interesting to note is that a few chapters earlier when the ministry of Elijah uh, was being passed down to Elisha, Elijah was being called to a few different cities. And he said, Elijah, hang tight. I'll, I'll be back. God's calling me here. And Elisha to Elijah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm not leaving your side. And that happened three times. So Elisha has heard these words before, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. This is a familiar echo to Elisha of his own words where this woman insists, I'm not leaving your side. So we see that the woman and <clears throat> Elisha and Gehazi make their way back to the house. Here's what we see. In verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. And so Gehazi arrives and does what he's told, and it seems to prove futile. There's no difference. There's no sign of life with this boy. There's no change. So he turns back and meets Elisha and the woman along the way and gives a report. Let's continue to read verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon the child, the flesh of the child became warm. And he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house. And he went up and stretched himself upon, up upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. This is a very unusual miracle if, if I've ever seen one. Eli Elisha closes the door, and he seeks the Lord. He's not Jesus. He, he can't 
do anything of his own accord, but he follows the instruction, the counsel, and the revelation from the Lord. So he seeks the Lord in prayer. He closes the door so they're in private, and he seeks the Lord in prayer. And what he does next with the laying on the child and the eyes to the eyes and the hands to the hands is odd and unconventional, I, I agree. This is a repeat of, of a similar event that happened with Elijah in the previous book where Elijah raises a boy to life by God's power doing something similar where he lays himself on the body of this boy. But it seems that it worked. Perhaps God, through his breath and through the strength of his hands and the vision of his sight, restored the body parts of this boy back to life through Elisha. It's a bizarre ritual, but it seems to have worked. <clears throat> so the boy gets, his forehead is warm again. And then it says, after this happens again, that the child sneezed seven times and he opened his eyes. Verse 36, then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. And he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. So this woman now, for the second time, is holding a gift of life. A child that was born out of impossible circumstances is taken from her and is now restored in impossible circumstances. Life was, a, a life was promised, a life was given, a life was taken, and a life was restored to the glory of God. Now, I hope that sounds familiar to you. A boy whose life was promised, who died, and was raised again. This is a foreshadow of something much greater yet to come. Hundreds of years later, it's a foreshadow. This is the end of the passage, and it goes on in the following verses to tell of another miracle that God did through the life of Elisha. So the story ends. The woman receives her son back, and it says that she went out. And I can only imagine the, 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 the joy when she falls at his feet again, bowing at his feet to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. So a, a few hours earlier, a few moments earlier, she was weeping at his feet. Now she's weeping at his feet with joy and thanksgiving and celebration and awe and wonder that her son has been restored to life. So my question to us this morning is, is why is this here? Why would the Lord in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty and providence have included this passage for us in his scripture? Why is it there? Do you think God would have been justified had it ended in verse 17 with the gift of life and happily ever after? Or what if it ended for us in verse 20, where the boy's lying lifeless in the lap of his mom? Would God have been justified if that were the end for this couple? Is that love for God to give a gift and take it away, or is that cruel? And I'm very aware that this story is, is personal for many of you who have experienced loss, perhaps of a child, but perhaps of, of a spouse, or a sibling, or a parent. It's personal. Maybe you have faced this tragedy and instead of witnessing this life being raised again raised back to life you watch this life this body be lowered into the ground and there's some finality about death isn't there so why would God choose to raise a boy sometimes or raise a girl sometimes and other times not can God still receive the glory when it seems like he hasn't showed up or when your prayers have gone unanswered can God still be counted as being good when the dead aren't raised, when the sick aren't healed, and 
when your prayers don't seem like they're answered? Can God still receive the glory for those things? After all, that's what these stories are here for. That's why Jesus heals. That's why, that's why we have these passages. It's to see God's glory. But is it glory if God doesn't make it good again? I'd like to argue that it does. God is still justified. There's two common responses, I think, to suffering. I, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't welcome suffering. I don't enjoy it. There's nothing pleasant about it, but there's two common responses among Christians when they encounter suffering. And the first is that they flee the Lord, that they run away. I mentioned the story of Job uh, a few moments ago. Job was righteous. It said that he, he, was, he was faultless. In fact, so much so that just in case there was some, maybe some sin or some, um, you know, untaken care of business with his kids, he would make sacrifices on their behalf, just, just to be sure, so that before the Lord, his family was righteous. He was very, very affluent. He had cattle, he had oxen, he had sheep, he had it all. He had property, he had lots of kids. And through a divine appointment between God Almighty and Satan, there's a succession of events permitted by God, mind you, where the enemy is able to strike Job, strike down his possessions. So his barns are lit on fire. All of his animals are taken from him. Everything's taken away, including his own kids. But up until this point, he still has his health because the agreement was that Satan couldn't touch his body. And Satan says, yeah, that's why he's still serving you because it says that Job remained righteous. He didn't sin. And Satan says, you know why? It's because I haven't been able to touch him yet. And God says, fine, touch him. You can take away his health. And so he does that. And so Job sits there, covered head to toe in sores, reflecting on everything that's been taken away from him. Everything but his wife has been taken away from him. And he's, it says that he's scraping his sores with broken pottery. You can just imagine this scene. He's sitting in ashes and just wallowing. And Job's wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is how God treats you after being righteous? Forget him. Flee the Lord. Curse him and die. That's the first response. And I don't think any one of us are impervious to that inclination to say, God, forget it. I'll follow you if things go well, but I didn't sign up for Anything difficult, any level of suffering, anything I didn't expect. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job says, stop that nonsense. Sure, we're first in line to receive good things from God, but when, things, when evil comes from God, shall we not receive that too? Do you not know the Lord? Job responds to his wife. Which, of course, is the second response. You could, you could flee the Lord or you could fear the Lord, like Job did. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Fear the Lord is the second common response. A few months ago, I had a brief conversation with someone uh, who was dying of cancer. Their body was just slowly being weakened. And I asked how, how they were doing. And this person said to me, I don't know, this person knew the Lord and said, this person said to me, I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. With a smile. That's an uncommon kind of joy, isn't it? To say, I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. And I thought, really? Like that, I wish I could say that too. <laughs> when cancer eats away at my body, that, and I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. 
That's how I'm getting through this. I'm leaning in to the Lord, even through my cancer, even through my suffering, even through death, even through loss. I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. My fear when we come to passages like this or when we come to much of the Bible is that we would lay it out like a menu and say, well, God did this for this person and so-and-so and raised that person. And so these are things that now I'm going to pick and choose that and my God's going to do this for me. And we, we sometimes can pray into that. God, do this. You did this for so-and-so and now you're going to do it for me. As though God owes it to us. That God owes us freedom from suffering. But that's just not true. That's just not faithful to the, to, to the word of God. It's not how it should be used at all. Let me, let me sidestep for a moment into the book of John again. John chapter 9, there's a scene where Jesus comes upon a man who's born blind. And the Pharisees in classic fashion come to Jesus and they want to trap him and they say, this guy's blind, whose fault is it? Is it because his mom sinned? Is it because his dad sinned? Is it because he sinned? Why was he born blind? What's the cause? Jesus says this happens so that the power of God could be seen in him. <laughs> In other words, forget the blindness, forget the restoration of sight. This happened so that I would receive glory. And the same is said about Jesus' friend Lazarus when he's sick and is pronounced dead. And when Jesus finally arrives, Martha is weeping and she says, if you were here earlier, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, this happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And you know how the story goes. Lazarus is raised from the dead. But listen, the point of those instances is God's glory. Amen and amen that God is powerful enough to raise people from the dead and is powerful enough to forgive sin and is powerful enough to restore sight to the blind. But the point of that is God's glory, not necessarily our freedom from suffering. The point is and always will be God's glory. John Piper puts it this way as a, a quote from a comment on the, um, the passage in Philippians, it, it, it'll, it'll make sense in a moment. Bear with me. John Piper says, Life and death for a Christian are acts of worship. They exalt Christ and magnify him and reveal and express his greatness when they come from an inner experience of treasuring Christ as gain. So if you treasure Christ as gain, life and death are acts of worship for a Christian. He goes on, Christ is praised in death by being prized above life. And Christ is most glorified in life when we are most satisfied in him, even before death. Christ is most glorified in life when we're most satisfied in him, even before death. The common denominator between living and dying is that Christ is the all-satisfying treasure that we embrace, whether we live or we die. And he says, Christ is praised by being prized. Christ is praised by being prized. So we come back to the question, why is this text here? What do we do with suffering? What do we do with the problem of, of evil and suffering in our lives? Because I don't know about you, I, not very common you read in the newspaper that a boy who was born as, out, of, out of a miraculous set of circumstances dies and is brought back to life. You don't, you don't hear about that very often. So what do we do with suffering, my suffering, your suffering? Is there something that by walking through it, perhaps, that God won't show you or God won't give you? When we walk through the road, when we walk through the fire and the trials in life, is there not something that through that God will graciously show us? 
We opened our service with a text from Romans 11, and it says this. I'll read it again. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Do you know the mind of God? In order, if you answer yes, you'd actually have to be God to know the mind of God. And do you, do you presuppose that because a, a purpose or a benefit or a cause behind the trials in life and the suffering you're enduring, do you presuppose that because you can't think of a cause or you can't think of a good reason that there isn't one? Do you know the mind of God? Just because you can't fathom a purpose, does that mean that there isn't one? Oh, us of little faith. Two final thoughts for us as we consider suffering and our life. Is that suffering requires um, from us obedience through faith. Suffering requires obedience through faith. And suffering is a means of God's glory being displayed through us when we obey. God uses our suffering to display his glory on display. It says for us in Hebrews 5 that even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus in every way suffered. Make no mistake about it. If you doubt that Christ suffered, you need to go back and do some studying. If you doubt that Christ suffered. I promise you this, that if you choose to fear the Lord through suffering and trial and through the flames, that your suffering won't be wasted. I can guarantee you that. I can't guarantee you what will happen. I can't guarantee you that the thing you're praying for will come to fruition. I can't guarantee you healing. I can't guarantee you resurrection from the life. I can't do any of that. But I can guarantee you that it won't be wasted. That God remains on the throne. He knows what he's doing and he won't waste your suffering. Faith, one one passage I studied this week, a reflection on faith, describes it this way, continuing to believe in the promises and goodness of God in light or in spite of your circumstances. So regardless of your circumstances, in light of them or in spite of them, faith is a steadfast believing in God's promises and his goodness, which doesn't change. And so for you and I, it's not enough to say or to hear the words, I don't know. Why did God do this? I don't know. I don't like... Saying that to people, <laughs> I feel like I need to give them a better answer. But I don't know is an okay thing to say and I don't know is an okay thing to hear when we trust the one who does know. When we know the one who knows, we don't need to know necessarily. The second and final thing is this, is that Christ is with you in your sufferings in every single way. And the call from Christ is for you to draw near to him. Hebrews 4, I'll end with this. Verses 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus is our intercessor. He's with you at all times. Let me pray. Father, I'm grateful that you're God, that you have a plan. And Lord, would that you would give us enough each day to make it through each day, Lord, with the pain and the sorrows that do come our way. You don't promise us a life free of trials and troubles, 
But Lord, you call us to take these things to you in prayer. So Lord, in all of our hearts, I pray that like, like a leash, like a fetter, Father, that we would return to you in moments of doubt, moments of need, moments of suffering and trial, Father, that we wouldn't flee from you, but we would do the opposite, that we would run into your open arms. Lord, I pray that in moments where those around us are suffering, Father, that you would give us the, the wherewithal to comfort them, to extend hospitality, to love them, to listen to them, to weep and mourn and grieve with them. And Lord, in moments of celebration and of joy, like a new birth, a new life, Father, would we celebrate? Pray that we would stand together, united as your children. And Father, allow us in all seasons of life a readiness that you would gird us with strength, that you would call us back to yourself, Lord. I ask all these things in your name. Amen.